Well, it's good, uh, good to be together uh, with you again today. If you're a kind of a fifth regular, you know that we're in a series in James. And if you're a guest with us today, we're in the seventh uh, message of an eight-message series, just working through the book of James. And we're actually reading the entire book in, in the services over these eight weeks, but of course we can't focus on everything in these passages. You have to kind of pick and choose a bit. And as, as I've been, been saying, the title for the series, Faith That Works, has a kind of double meaning. Of course, our faith in Jesus is faith that works for the believer. It, it changes our lives. It sets us on a completely different life path. It actually works. It's a better way to live. Uh, and it's faith that works for those in the world who don't yet know the Lord and for the world at large, right? Our faith should have an outworking in the world uh, such that people can not only hear the gospel, but can see the gospel, see it enacted. So it's faith that works. And, and James is a very practical book. James is um, um, pretty much answering the question, look, if you really believe the claim that we live in a world where a resurrection has happened, what might your life look like? What, what kind of life um, might, might yours appear to be to others around you? What should it look like? And this week we're in the second half of chapter four and the first section of chapter five where James issues two scathing rebukes, just scathing. And I've, I've reminded us several times that you know, when James wrote this letter, he, he wasn't writing to the world at large. He was writing to the church. He was writing to us. <laughs> he was writing to believers, to Christians who, who know Jesus and believe in Jesus and, and trust Jesus. And as you listen to the text, you'll, you'll hear the beginning of those two rebukes because James begins both of them with two words. Now listen. And if you do the homework on the original language, you, you come to learn that that was very strong language. It was like saying, woe unto you. You know, in, in modern language, the, the emotional force equivalent would be something like this. Hey, listen up. You're being foolish and I'm going to set you straight. It was very direct. And both rebukes have to do with a particular category of foolishness, which we'll unpack in a bit. But let's listen to the text together. Hear the word of the Lord from James chapter 4, verse 13, through the fifth chapter, verse 6. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. 
You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who has not, who was not opposing you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Becca. So the outline today includes three things. It's pretty simple. The what, the why, and the what now. The what was a problem that James was addressing, and then he tells us why the problem was a problem, and he tells us how to escape the problem or, or what to do instead. So the what, the why, and the what now. So what was the problem? Uh, you, might, you might know uh, the author Henry Cloud. He's a Christian psychologist and author. He's written a bunch of books, and, and I find his writing to be particularly helpful. One of my favorites of his is a book titled Necessary Endings. Subtitle, The Employees, Businesses, and Relationships That All of Us Have to Give Up in Order to Move Forward. Sounds a little counterintuitive, right? As Christians, we feel like we're called to engage with people, love people, no matter where they're at, and, and we are, but there's some truth here. In, in the book, he unpacks the three categories of people, people of which the Bible speaks, or, or maybe more accurately, three, three behavioral responses people might take in a particular context or setting. The wise, the foolish, and the evil. The wise are those who are open to feedback and are constructive. They're trying to build something with their lives. The foolish are those who reject feedback and try to explain away problems and failures. They're trying to avoid something with their lives. And the evil are those who respond to the world around them with, with a, a spirit of striking back, with some kind of violence, physical, emotional, spiritual. Their, their thinking is, if I'm going, I'm going to take the whole thing with me. I'm going to burn it all down. Right? They're trying to destroy things with their lives. In the passage we read this morning, James is confronting foolishness in Christians. So we've got to listen up, right? He's talking to Christians. And it's a particular category of foolishness. Now, when, when you and I use the word fool or, or foolishness, you know, in, in modern usage, it, it doesn't feel like a very substantial word. We might, we might be thinking about someone who has made some poor choices. We might be, uh, in this divided kind of season in which we're living, we might think of somebody who doesn't share our particular opinion on an issue. We might call them a fool or something like that. But in, in the Bible, foolishness was a very substantial word. It had a very clear meaning. Uh, I, I love the way Tim Keller defined it in a sermon he preached on James. Foolishness is culpable blindness to reality that leads to destructive choices culpable blindness to reality, meaning uh, a blindness to which we're held accountable because we're choosing not to see something that's clearly visible. It's not that we can't see, it's that we choose not to see. And that choice then leads us down a path of destructive choices that are destructive for us and for others. And, and right at the beginning here, I, I quote uh, Tim Keller there, I do need to acknowledge my indebtedness to a sermon he preached on James that really shaped the first section of this message. His, his message was so good. Um, J- James is confronting this particular category of foolishness in the church. And, and he writes, now listen, or again, listen up. 
you're being foolish, and I'm going to set you straight. So what does he say then? Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. That statement is the problem, or, or at least that statement reveals the problem in some way. So what, what exactly is the problem? Because, you know, that sounds more like an entrepreneur planning a business venture. That sounds like a business plan, doesn't it? I mean, there's a place, there's a purpose, kind of a business model, a specified time frame, the, the hope of profitability within that specified time frame. I mean, if you, if you put a business together and you go to a bank to get a loan to start your business, you need a plan like this. You need, you need a clear statement of what you're planning to do and what you're hoping for, what you're expecting to see. So, so what's the problem? Is it that Christians shouldn't do business? Well, no, that's, that's not it. Was it the planning part? Was it like get, getting ahead of ourselves? We should just day by day trust God and not plan? Well, clearly, that's, that's not it. In, in more Bible language, the Proverbs make it really clear that, you know, like if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. So it can't be the that the planning is bad. Is it the profitability part? Was their goal a little too high? Were, were they getting a little greedy, you know, with the profit they hoped to make? Was it the time frame too aggressive? What was the problem? The problem was what Tim Keller called the life control illusion. Love that phrase. What James is saying here is that there's a particular category of foolishness that looks only to our own abilities and as a foundation of, of trust and, and hope. It looks to ourselves. The life control illusion is that belief that if we do our planning and strategizing and, and due diligence and, and if we stick to the plan, if we persevere and don't give up and keep at it, working hard, we can do whatever we set our minds to do. We can accomplish whatever we'd like to accomplish. We can become any kind of person we would like to become. We command our own destiny and are in control of our own futures. That's the life control illusion. And according to the Bible, it's foolishness. It, it's a culpable blindness to reality that leads to destructive choices. I mean, just, just think of it. We're in the midst of graduation season. <laughs> just think of almost any commencement address you've heard. Graduates, the world is yours. Your life will be what you make of it. You can do it. Go out there and get at it. You know, and we're all like, yeah, this is all, yeah, go out there and get at it. This message is everywhere in our culture. We make educational videos to teach our kids this. Check this out. That's really cute, isn't it? <laughs> you know what else it is? 
a complete lie with dire, dire consequences. You know, you can be whatever you want to be. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm all about perseverance. <laughs> I'm all about working hard. We, we, all about, you know, training and equipping and, and staying at it. All clear, clear teachings of Scripture, right? But to believe wholesale that we direct our futures, that it's up to us, that if we dream it, we can do it. That is a culpable blindness to reality that will lead to destructive choices. I mean, just, just work out the logic of it in your mind. It leads to one of two places, either pride and overconfidence or shame and self-doubt. Just do the math in your head. Like if you, if you subscribe to the religious belief that you can make your dreams come true, and that is what that is. It's a religious belief. It's an article of faith. If you believe that, it leaves no room for God. It amounts to functional atheism on both the positive and negative side. On the positive side, if you're very successful, you'll believe that you're successful because you made a plan, because you did the work, because you pulled it off, because it was all you. You're a self-made person and you deserve all the glory because you earned it. Pride and overconfidence. And on the negative side, if, if you're not successful or if at some point you take inventory of your life and you realize that not all of your dreams have come true. It's not all as rosy as you hoped it would be. Well, by this line of thinking, the life control illusion, it must be entirely your fault. Clearly, you failed. You didn't work hard enough, or maybe your plan was poor. You didn't do enough planning. You didn't stick to it. Says that way of thinking, you did something wrong, and therefore you didn't just fail. You are a failure. There's no room in that belief system for accidents or disease or, or the countless powers outside our control, let alone divine assistance, guidance, and blessing. So is it any wonder that in a culture like ours that buys the life control illusion hook, line, and sinker that we have such tremendous issues with two basic problems, pride and depression? Because if it's entirely up to me, I'm going to end up in one of those two places. I'm a husband and a father and, and pastor in a great marriage to a wonderful woman. We've got two great boys. Our house isn't super fancy, but it is really nice. And we're safe. We're secure. We have plenty of food to eat. We go on vacation. We can do fun things. But any one of us could just as easily have been born in a mud hut in the desert of Ethiopia where there is zero opportunity. There's no economy. Hardly any education. I mean, none of us controlled where we were born. None of us controlled the circumstances into which we were born. We don't control the family into which we were born, the resources to which, uh, which are available to us. We don't control any of that. So the problem James is addressing is this life control illusion that we are in control of our lives. That's the problem. That's the what. Now, why is it a problem? Now, there, there are two very, really obvious answers. The first is, it's not true. <laughs> and the second is, it doesn't work. I mean, if you drive all the way to the end of that road, you realize it's a dead end. It doesn't lead anywhere. But, 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 
by asking why is it a problem, that's, that's not the kind of thinking I'm getting at. I'm getting at what James kind of unpacks here. And what he unpacks is the faulty reasoning upon which the life control illusion is based. And, and he, he unpacks that in, in the next verse here, verse 14. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. So why are we tempted to believe the life control illusion? Because we like to believe that we know what's going to happen tomorrow and out into the future. And because we like to avoid grappling with our own mortality. Life, life is filled with uncertainty. You don't even know what will happen tomorrow, says James. And the unspoken subtext is, let alone a year down the road when you feel like your business will be profitable. I mean, we, we just don't know. Think about the craziness of the stock market through COVID. The, the strange divorce of market from economy. And how weird is that? Who would have thought that would have happened? In his sermon on this, Keller used the illustration of the Great Recession and uh, all the financial management models that completely missed the risk exposure of the mortgage market. And then when, when the, the, the card house came tumbling down, what was everybody's response? Well, nothing like this has ever happened before. We didn't know it could happen. Exactly. You didn't know. <laughs> because we can't know. We just can't know. Life is filled with uncertainties because we don't even know what will happen tomorrow. I mean, I think one of the prime spiritual opportunities presented to us over the last 15 months of COVID has been the opportunity to embrace the reality that we are not in control. At all. <laughs> I mean, the life control illusion is just that, an illusion, a lie. RCA pastor and chaplain Jerry Sitzer wrote of his greatest life tragedy on a kind of family field trip, their minivan. Was struck by a drunk driver traveling at very high speed. The accident took the life of his mother, his wife, and a daughter. All like that. Three generations of women in his family gone in one horrific, completely unexpected moment. James tells us we need to grasp not only the uncertainty of life, but the brevity of life. What is your life? You're like a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Throughout college, I worked at a small a family resort up in northern Michigan on Elk Lake, if you know Elk Lake. And I uh, became the business manager of that, uh, of that resort, really close with the family that owns it. And in that capacity, when I, when I was kind of the number two person to the owner, I, I was almost always the first person awake in the morning, uh, uh, except for our two cooks that came in really early to start breakfast and stuff before. Like, I was the first one up, and I would walk around the grounds and just doing the leader thing, right? Like making sure everything was okay and just getting the day started off right. And on, on quiet days on Elk Lake, there would be this beautiful mist over the, you, You've probably seen some like a very quiet lake, no wind, and the mist coming off the lake. 
thought that was so beautiful. Almost always, by the time we got to breakfast and everybody else was up, it was gone. And I, I always thought, people are just missing this. You know, the mist was there just for a little bit, and then it's gone. Didn't even see it go away. It's just gone. I mean, evidently, God really wants us to get this message about the brevity of life because it appears throughout Scripture. Job, my days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle. As the cloud fades and vanishes, so he who goes down to Sheol does not come up. For my days are swifter than a runner. Or King David, my days are like an evening shadow. For my days pass away like smoke. You have made my days a few handbreadths. As for man, his days are like grass. Just, it's that long, our lives. But wow, does everything in our culture war against that reality? I mean, there are distractions everywhere that would have us not think about that. I can, probably, there's probably even a little part in us right now that says, yeah, yeah, you know, John, I know that. I know that that's true, but I'll, I'll, I'll think about that later. No. Don't think about it later. Think about it right now because it will bring wisdom. And British journalist Malcolm Muggeridge made the point very well. In our post-Christian era, death has recovered its old terrors, becoming unmentionable, as sex has become ever more mentionable. Private parts are public, but death is the 20th century's dirty little secret. And death has replaced sex in our culture as the dirty little secret. And it continues into the 21st century as our dirty little secret. We do everything we can to stop it. Spend untold millions fighting it off for just another day or week or two in the ICUs around the country. I mean, apart from Jesus, our culture hides in the shadows of self-indulgence, cowering in abject terror hoping with no basis that death might just pass us over, all the while knowing it won't, and looking to strike that terrible thought from our minds with the next purchase. We are not in control. Life is uncertain and brief. So what do we do? How shall we live? James tells us, instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. If it's the Lord's will. James isn't just talking about changing our language now. He's talking about changing the posture of our heart. I mean, what we're actually thinking and and believing internally and is then directing our outward action. And there, there are two completely different life postures that that James is comparing and contrasting here. There's the life control illusion posture and there's the if the Lord wills posture, right? The life control illusion posture believes that we're in control, that we can make the future whatever we want it to be. It's the posture of heart described in in verse 16 of our text today. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. I mean, in the ancient world, a boast was understood to be the source of one's confidence for living. If you boasted in something, you were boasting about that which gives you strength and and, and security. That's the background on that verse from 1 Corinthians that says, uh, therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If you're going to talk to other people about your strength and security and confidence for living, 
talk about Jesus and what he's done for us. Not all that we've accomplished for ourselves or on our own, supposedly. I mean, this is the other posture of heart. There's the life control illusion, and then there's the boasting in the Lord, the, the if the Lord wills kind of posture. And that posture believes that what happens to us is largely based on forces outside of our control. And, and therefore, if anything good in our lives happens, if, if we gained any success, if we flourished in any way, it is because God has blessed and helped us. Now, now this sermon, I'm, I'm, I didn't have time to do the whole second rebuke, which is all the first part of chapter five, all the part about wealth and how, you know, the wealth can rot your body. It's, wealth isn't bad. It's just that if you're believing the life control illusion, and you're believing that you've succeeded solely because of your hard work and your plan and you pulled it off, well, guess what? All your wealth is yours in your mind. And we get grippy. And we want more. And we're less likely to be open-handed and to share and to, to view all that is under our control right now in this life as something that God has gifted to us and we get to steward. We see it rather as something that we earned and deserve to keep. And in that sense, it can begin a kind of spiritual rot in our hearts, right? So that's the whole second rebuke that, that James unpacks here. So life control illusion versus if the Lord wills. Now that all, that all sounds nice, but how do, you, how do you go about fostering that kind of posture in life? What do we actually do? Is there something that we can do? What's our part? Because in our culture, it's really hard. These messages are everywhere, right? You should do it. You can. If you dream it, you can do it. All that. Commentator Kent Hughes put it this way. Despite Christian trappings and evangelical nods, we often live without serious reference to God's will. Like we show up here, we read the Bible, we do our devotions, we nod our heads. Yep, I believe all that. Yet in our living, there is very little actual reference to, to how God is willing our lives forward. Right, so what, what do we do to start changing that in us? I, I mentioned several months ago in a, in a sermon I preached uh, about how ancient Christians grappled with this, a similar kind of idea here, and developed something called a rule of life. You might have heard of that, you might not have heard about that. It was basically a way of living that includes uh, predictable patterns that shape us spiritually, that, that help us toward that second posture, toward the if the Lord wills posture, helps us to trust Christ and, and to live accordingly. And in a, in a more recent book, a, a guy named uh, Justin Early wrote a book called The Common Rule. He was trying to translate some of that rule of life stuff from ancient times to current times. And he suggested some very practical, predictable patterns like these. Uh, spend one hour a day where you turn your phone off. Not just silent mode. Turn it off. Before you pick up your phone every day, read scripture. The scripture before phone principle. Plan at least one meal a week that you share with another person or people. Limit your media intake to four hours a week. Fast from something. 
anything for 24 hours. Be intentional about fasting. Right? Just, just simple, predictable patterns that can start to shape our heart toward that if the Lord wills posture. Can change us, you know, one small degree at a time. That's, that's our part in this. That's sanctification, right? The process of saying, cooperating with what God's doing in our lives and not resisting what God's doing in our lives. So, the what, the why, and the what now. What's the problem? The life control illusion. It's everywhere. Don't buy it, it's a lie. Why is it a problem? Because we do not know the future and our life is way shorter than we like to think. What do we do now? We adopt a posture of heart that says and believes that God is in control. And we we begin that work by adding one predictable pattern, one simple thing to our lives that will help foster that kind of spiritual posture. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Pray with me, would you? God, we give ourselves to you and we we pray that you would help us by your spirit know how we ought to apply the scripture to our lives. How we uh, ought to apply this scripture to our lives. God, show us where the life control illusion really has hold in us, where we're believing something that Uh, that isn't true and that is leading us toward destructive choices for, for ourselves and for others. Open our eyes, Lord. Empower us by your spirit. Help us see and help us follow you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.